Hey everyone, it is really good to be back together again with you this morning. Well, I just want to take a moment and wish a very happy American Mother's Day to all the moms at BRBC. We love you so much. I know my mom, Nancy, is watching, so happy Mother's Day, mom. Well, today we are continuing our series in When People Meet Jesus Face to Face, and James is going to be preaching. Well, now's the time when we get to open God's Word together, we get to read it, and then James is going to come and speak on what it means for us today. So I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible near you, if you would like to grab that or open it on your phone, and we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. So if you'd like to take that out um, and turn to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, and if you don't have it, have it with you, that's absolutely fine. It'll come up on the screen next to me. Again, one more time, that's Luke chapter 7 verses 1 down to verse 10. And it reads like this. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Over to James. Well, good morning, everyone. If we've not met before, let me introduce myself. My name's James, and alongside Peter, Peter, I'm one of the pastors here at BRBC. Now, I don't know about you guys over the last few days, but I speak for myself. I found this lockdown strange way of life incredibly, incredibly frustrating. I don't really know how to describe my emotions around it. Uh, I feel a little bit agitated. I feel um, frustrated by it. I have down days and moments with it all. I don't know about you, maybe you're there too. Maybe maybe because you're working harder than you ever worked before and it feels unnoticed, or maybe you've not got much to do and the silence is deafening. I mean, you're an introvert, but <laughs> you've overdosed on introversion and need people. Or maybe just the traffic and the noise of social media feels overwhelming. I, I don't know where you are. Maybe, maybe it's the frustration of learning how to be a teacher with all the homeschooling. Ugh. Maybe you feel a little bit like me, I don't know. But what I think is amazing is that we get to still be here together on a Sunday morning, gathering together, yes, online, but we get to pray, we get to sing, and we get to come around God's word and begin to explore what his word has for us. Now this morning, we're looking at Jesus healing the centurion's servant. And what we have in this story is unexpected faith. It's unexpected. Now, do you ever have those moments in your life where you find yourself saying, I did not see that coming. That 
was unexpected. You know, sometimes in our lives we say that over something unwanted. So, I don't know, some exam results that didn't quite go our way, or a letter from the bank manager. I didn't expect that. I think we could say the same with the coronavirus crisis, couldn't we? None of us could have looked into 2020 and said to ourselves, by May, on today, this Sunday, uh, our lives would look like this. Um, none of us were uh, uh, thinking on December the 31st at New Year's, looking ahead with our hopes and dreams for this year and would have said, by today, our lives would look like this. You know, I did not expect that. And sometimes we say that when something makes us jump. So uh, say, for example, you're watching a really, really tense scene in a film and there's a loud moment or a bang and makes you jump and you leap off out, out, up out of the sofa. Um, maybe with uh, an unexpected thunderclap makes you jump. Or, or maybe you've got somebody in your house who finds it enjoyable to hide in cupboards, under beds, round dark corners and jump out and scare you. Makes you think, I did not see that coming. And then sometimes we can say, I didn't see that coming with things that are welcome and wanted. To so say, for example, a, a surprise party or, or someone's random act of kindness towards you. Or what about when you go to a restaurant and it's your favorite restaurant, you've been there countless times and yet you decide, do you know what? I'm not going to have that same dish that I always have. I'm going to turn the page of the menu and I'm going to get that thing I thought about getting and I'm going to do it. And then you walk away from the restaurant thinking to yourself, that was amazing. That was so surprising. I did not expect that. Now what we have in this passage today is exactly that. In a very, very good way, we find the amazing faith coming from an amazing place. We find ourselves saying, whoa, we did not see that coming. It's a Roman centurion, a Roman, demonstrating that kind of an unexpected faith. And we find it's a faith that Jesus himself celebrates and highlights. So what I want to do this morning is really simple. I want to take a close look at the centurion's unexpected faith and then ask a basic question. What does this centurion's faith teach us about the nature of Christian faith? I mean, if it's a kind of faith that Jesus highlights and Jesus celebrates, then it's, that kind of faith has surely got to make us stop and say, wait, 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 wait. What can we learn about the nature of faith from the kind of faith we see in the life of this centurion. So here's how we're going to map this out. We're going to see the nature of Christian faith, and I want to map this out in three key ways. We're going to see where it starts, we're going to see what it knows, and we're going to see where it stands, okay? Where it starts, what it knows, and where it stands. So let's jump here, jump in here, where it starts, verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So the scene is set. We have a servant who's at the point of death, uh, but we've got a very, very compassionate and concerned centurion. Now, what's a centurion? Well, a lot of us think that a centurion is somebody who was in charge of a century of people, a hundred people. Well, the history, history books show us that centurions sometimes were in charge of less than a hundred people and sometimes way more than a hundred people. 
But what we do know about centurions is they are highly decorated and respected Roman military officials. Now, remember last week, as we were learning uh, about Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, we learned about the Roman occupation of Israel and what the Roman Empire was up to. Now, that's something we need to keep in mind whenever we're, we're reading the Gospels and the life of Jesus, is to read it through the lens of the fact that Israel was being ruled oppressively and brutally by the Roman Empire. And there's this longing from the people to have their national independence back. Now, now, most often the Romans aren't liked, and that's understandable, because the Romans are extracting extortionate taxes from the people to fund their military exploits in different parts of the empire. But they're also not liked because, because the Romans ruled heavy-handedly, oppressively, brutally. You know, the Romans wanted, they wanted no uprising, no riots, no fuss, and they wanted to keep the peace of the empire. And they were going to get this subdued submission from everyone they ruled over, and they were going to get it at any cost. And so one of the tactics of the Romans was to threaten people. And, and a key example would be, it's, it's quite gory, but what the Romans would do is they would, they would take one of the main roads leading up into one of the big cities, and they would line the road on either side with people being crucified thousands of crucifixions taking place along this main road. And so what happened was that people would then walk into the city to, to visit family or to get on with trading, and they would have to walk past these crucified people. And basically, the, the point the Roman Empire was making was, if you dare cross us, this is what's going to happen to you. So that was their way of keeping the peace. And so can you imagine what it's like to be uh, living in the country of Israel under the rule of the Romans? And what are you going to think about the Romans? You're not going to like them. It's gonna, they're going to bring a bitter taste in your mouth. But here's what's interesting. We find a centurion and he's framed in a positive light. His reputation seemed to, seems to go against the trend and that is unexpected. Now the centurion has a good relationship with the Jewish leaders, the elders. Look at this in verse 3. We read, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. So he asked the Jewish uh, elders to go and find Jesus with this request. He's reaching out. But we get some reasons here in verses 4 and 5 that explain the good relationship he has with them. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, this is really interesting, because what we're seeing is something of the centurion's kindness, and we also see a kind of openness he seems to exhibit to the God of Israel. And this then causes the Jewish elders to passionately fight his corner and see his request through. I mean, that's why they go to Jesus and they pleaded with him earnestly. It reads right there. Let's put this together a little bit. Do you see the character of this centurion? He's esteemed by the people, desperately concerned for his servant, compassionately concerned, and then then he's generous to the people. Well, surely that's got to give us cause to really observe him. And we need to see something more here. Because the centurion's faith flows from this personal crisis he finds himself in. The centurion 
feels the helplessness of the situation. He needs an answer. He needs help. He's got to ask. He's got to reach out. He has to be humbled. And that shows us something about the starting place of faith. Have a look at this in in verse 6. And when Jesus went with him, Jesus went with them, sorry. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Did you see that? This is showing us something about the very nature and the starting place of faith. The starting place of this faith in Jesus we see in the life of the centurion begins with humility. Point one, where it starts. Humility. Now, the centurion is in a crisis, and it's through this crisis that he humbly goes to Jesus. Now, maybe you've experienced this to be true in your own life. Maybe you've seen it in the lives of others, and maybe it's something you've read about. But so often, people's faith in Jesus comes through times of crisis. Now, I know some psychologists could look at that and say, well, people just suddenly feel vulnerable and they need some kind of a hope. So they reach out for the first thread of hope that comes their way. But actually, that doesn't, that doesn't properly understand the nature of crisis. You see, crisis isn't just a, a sudden moment of vulnerability. Crisis exposes a constant human vulnerability that was always there and, and we just didn't see it. And maybe you felt that when you've gone through some kind of a crisis, a centurion-like crisis, a coronavirus-like crisis, a personal identity crisis, when you're fed up with the weight of the world and the expectation they're placing upon you, and you come to that place where you just say, I can't do this anymore. Those kinds of crises. We feel fragile and not invincible. Have you ever been there before when life suddenly gets unnerving? What about when the things we had placed our hopes in are suddenly more shaky than we realized? What about when we realize through crisis that we have needs that go far, far deeper than we ever thought? You see, hard times show us what's true about us and about our existence and what's true all along. Our need for Jesus goes deeper than we ever thought. Think about the centurion. He hits this crisis And even in his power, all of his authority as a highly decorated Roman military official, he can't change the situation. And it's in this crisis he sees what's true. He sees the need and he turns to Jesus. Follow me here. The point is that crisis doesn't suddenly make us vulnerable. Crisis shows us that we always have been vulnerable and in need of Jesus. Crisis exposes and reveals what was always true. And of course, it doesn't always take a crisis for us to see what's true about us and our need of Jesus. But for the centurion, that certainly seems to be the case. Now, this eye-opening need of Jesus produces something. But what does it produce? Answer, humility. True humility. You know, true humility says, essentially... (laughs) The answer isn't in me. True humility says, I need help. Humility says, I can't do this on my own. You see, that kind of humility, that's the starting place of faith 
when we reach out just like the centurion and grab a hold of Jesus. Let me illustrate this a little bit. When when I was growing up, every single summer holiday, my family and I, we would go to the very southwestern tip of Wales, Pembrokeshire, and would stay in a really, really beautiful place called St. David's. Family had a cottage there, and it was wonderful. Go there every single summer. And what we would do was pretty much the same, usually good weather. Uh, We would go onto the beach, make sandcastles, splash around in the waves, and that was our mainly our day-to-day activities. And then in the evenings, we would go on some kind of a a walk in the countryside, which was most often one of those famous cliff-top paths through the Welsh uh, countryside along the coast. Now, we got really, really excited the weeks leading up to this, and we, we would get phone calls from my grandma. Now, sweet, sweet lady, but she was a worrier and worried so much for her grandchildren, me and and my brother. And we would get several phone calls from her leading up to our holiday, and she would express her concern about these clifftop walks that we would do. And so she would she would say something along the lines of, in her very, very broad South Norfolk accent, that you probably need a translator for, she would say, don't you let them boys go near the cliff, she'd say. Now, I remember them walking along these clifftop paths, and sometimes you'd kind of get close enough to just look over the edge, and you'd see hundreds and hundreds of a sheer cliff face. There would be maybe rocks below or the waves of the ocean crashing against the bottom of the cliffs. And I could understand why Grandma felt so concerned and worried for us. But I remember thinking as a child in my very naive, childlike way, well, even if I fell off, I could probably just grab onto one of those roots. Because where some of the rocks had fallen away, you could see these big old roots and maybe some old pipes that had led to something that that was now in the sea. Uh, Well, old old pipes sticking out. I thought to myself, look, if you know, Grandma might be right, but if I ever do slip, if we do get too close, I'll just grab a hold of one of those and I will be all right. Now think about this. I know it's a naive thing to, to, to think about as a kid, but thought experiment here. Heaven forbid, if you were to slip and if you were to fall, naturally and instinctively, you would realize my only hope in that moment is to grab a hold of the root, is to grab a hold of the pipe, because if I don't, it's going to be bad for me. Now, that's how we need to be understanding the gift of faith as the Bible describes it and faith in Jesus Christ. It's that moment where we suddenly realize I'm falling, I'm lost, and without without any help, it's going to look bad for me. Without Jesus, I'm going to fall it. This is going to be bad. I need him. And without him, I'm lost. Without him, my eternity does not look good. Without him, I'm going to face God's judgment. Without him, I need Jesus. And so faith in Jesus is that moment where we reach out and we grab a hold of the one thing that's stable, the one thing that can save us, the one thing that can prevent us from falling. That's faith. But think about that moment of faith in Jesus Christ. Think about that. It reaches out. It says, in genuine humility, I need help. I can't do this on my own. Humility doesn't proudly promote the self. Humility reaches out and says, the answer isn't in me. You see, we see this true humility right here expressed in the centurion. As he feels the helplessness, he reaches out and he grabs a hold of Jesus. Now, true humility then stems from seeing my insufficiency and Christ's all-sufficiency. The centurion's servant's about to die, and he was helpless to deal with the irreversible illness and the imminent death. 
And so he says to Jesus, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. So the centurion's faith, we see it starts with humility, where it starts with humility. But secondly, what it knows. What does faith know? Let's read verses 7 and 8 together. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but to say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, it seems strange what the centurion is saying there, but I think he's making two related simple points. Firstly, Jesus, I know your power. You, You just say the word, and you can do whatever you want. I see that. And secondly, what we see here is I think the centurion is saying, I get the concept of authority. I tell people to go and they go. Tell them to come, they come. Do this and they do that. He's saying, look, I I know all about the nature of authority. Authority is the story of my life. Therefore, Jesus, I recognize your, your authority. So the message is clear here, but the centurion sees, he recognizes the power and the authority of Jesus. Okay, so what faith knows? Faith knows Jesus's power and authority. You see, the centurion's faith leads him to the place where he sees the magnitude of God's power and authority all in Jesus Christ himself. The centurion has a big God in view. The story is told of Dr. Robert Wilson. He was a professor of Hebrew at Princeton Seminary uh, in the early part of last century. And they say that he knew almost 40 languages. Crazy. Well, well, Dr. Wilson um, would often go to the seminary chapels, the the services that they would put on. And especially if there was a former student, he wanted to go along and hear this student preach. Well, one day, uh, a former student called Donald Barnhouse, uh, who who had returned to preach, and so Dr. Wilson goes along to hear him. And then afterwards, Wilson goes up to Barnhouse and he says, I'm glad that you are a big godder. (laughs) When my students come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be like. Oh, Barnhouse then says to Wilson, what do you mean? Can you explain yourself? And Wilson replies, he says, well, some people are little godders. They have a little god. God can't do miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of scripture. He doesn't intervene on the behalf of his people. They have a little god, and I call them little godders. And then there are those who have a great God, a God who speaks and it is done, commands and it stands fast, who knows how to show himself strong on behalf of his people and those that fear him. You have a great God and he blesses you. You see, with the centurion, we find that he's a big godder, as Wilson would put it, who knows that Jesus Christ is Lord. You say the word Lord and it will be done. You see, the centurion's faith knows Jesus' power and authority. There is a big God in view. Now, you might uh, might ask the question this morning, well, what difference does that make? What difference does, does, does how big my God, what difference does that make? Well, I answer every, every difference in the world. All the difference. A.W. Tozer famously once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, if we have a big God, we have a God who can be fully trusted. Even when the storms of life threaten to overwhelm us, 
Just like the disciples on the lake with Jesus, as he speaks to the wind and the waves, quiet. We have a God who is powerful and authoritative, even over the universe that we live in. You see, when we have a big God, we have a God in whom we can take comfort because nothing is too big for him. Think about Stephen being pelted with stones. As, his, as, as he, just before he dies, he then looks up and he sees this grand, magnificent view of Jesus. And in that, he finds a comfort in the most painful bit of his life. You see, when we have a big God, we have a God who can save. A God who is ultimately powerful voluntary steps down into our world and takes on human flesh. Jesus Christ himself, a big God, lives the life that we couldn't live. A big God with power and authority proclaims, teaches, heals, saves, and then goes to the cross. A big God goes to the cross and like a servant, he gives himself up to the point of death. But a big God who defeated death and undid the chains of death That is a big God, and a big God can save. So let me ask you this morning, how big is your God? Are you living with the centurion-like recognition of God's power and authority? You see, when you have a big God, you can step in strength into all of life's situations, conversations, and circumstances. When you have a big God... You can take audacious risks, grounded with the confidence, on the confidence that your God is bigger than anything you can face. When you have a big God, you can speak with courage because your God is always bigger than any hostile word word that the world can throw your way. When you have a big God, you have a God who holds even the oceans of the world in the palms of his hand. Such great expanses of deep water are eclipsed by his grandeur. And there is nothing that can overcome him. See, when you have a big God, you have a God who can give comfort even in the face of death because he stepped down and like a a servant died for us on the cross and in resurrection power, Jesus has broken the chains of death. Question for you saints this morning, how big is your God today? The centurion's faith knows the unmatched power of Jesus, the unrivaled authority of Jesus. He has a big God in view. So we know where where it starts. We know what it knows. But lastly, where does it stand? Look at verses 9 and 10 with me here. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turning to the, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So this is a faith that Jesus highlights, he celebrates. And the servant is healed. But all the way through this, we see the centurion's faith is directed to Jesus the entire time. His faith is grounded on Jesus. Now, a couple of key points about the nature of faith we have to know here. Number one. Faith is something every single person has. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, thank you, James, but I'm, I'm not a person of faith. You know, I, I tend to think of myself as someone who's reason-based, or I'm a rationalist. Do you know what? There's still faith in that. Because you're, because you're faith, placing your faith in your ability to reason properly. You have faith in your reason. You have faith in you. Or what about if you say, well, I'm a, I'm a scientist and I'm, I'm evidence-based. That, that's how I operate. You know what? If I kept asking you the question, well, how do you know? And how do you know? And why do you know that? And why can you be sure of that? 
How do you know that? How do you know? If we kept asking that question to every single answer you gave, I think at the bottom of it all, we'll come to a place of faith. And there's nothing neutral about that. What about if you say, I wish I couldn't have faith? I wish I could have faith, sorry. But you do. You put your trust, you're putting your trust in something or someone to give you hope, to give you meaning, to, give, to, to help you make sense of yourself and the world around you. You see, faith is natural to the human being. We are creatures that exhibit faith. Okay, it's something we all have, but secondly, our faith will be put in someone or something. You're like, well, okay, well, how do I know? How do I know where I place my faith? Well, ask yourself a question. Where do you run to when life feels impossible? Where do you go when you feel overwhelmed and things are starting to crack and cave in? Look at where you go when the problems in life feel overwhelming. Sometimes we can put our faith in money thinking to ourselves that money will make us satisfied. Money will take away our problems. Money will fulfill our dreams and our hopes and our wishes. Money will be it all. And sometimes we can try and put our faith in in a relationship. Say marriage, for example. Marriage will make me satisfied. Marriage will fulfill my hopes. Marriage will be everything that I need to give me value, worth, and purpose in my life. But you know when you're doing that, you're putting an incredible weight on the shoulders of something a human being was never made to bear. Sometimes we can put our faith in career. A career will give me everything that I need. I will feel valuable. I'll be worthwhile. I have the purpose. My hopes and my dreams will all be fulfilled. But it never pays back on its promises. You see, here's the thing. The question is not, do I have the faith? The question is, what do I put my faith in? For the centurion and for me, coming to know Jesus is not about generating faith in us. It's about turning our faith to Jesus. So thirdly, where it stands, it stands on Jesus. Now, this is a real simple point here, but it's something we need to see. A faith that stands on Jesus is exactly that. It's a faith that stands on Jesus and not me. Now, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want you to see something about a key, key element of the Christian faith. And if you do consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want you to see something of a comfort or an assurance here. Think about this. The centurion is showing us that faith is directed, honed in on Jesus. So it means that that it's not the strength of our faith that matters, but the object of our faith that matters. Let me illustrate that. I'm kind of adopting uh, uh, an illustration by Tim Keller as he was speaking through this text. He said, imagine two rock climbers. One rock climber has intense, exuberant, and flamboyant faith. And he says, look at that rock right there. I have the confidence and the faith that that rock is going to hold me. And the other rock climber says, well, well, I don't know. That rock looks really precarious, and I'd be very nervous of standing on that. I wouldn't stand on that if I were you. In fact, I'm going to stand on that rock over there. That rock seems sturdy. That's look, that, that, that rock is never going to fall. That's going to hold me. And the one with the exuberant faith says, well, come on then, let's step out into these rocks. I'll prove you wrong. So they both step out onto the rocks. The one with the intense, over-the-top faith, the one who had all of the confidence in his ability to see, to think that that rock was going to hold him, well, he finds out that the rock wasn't stable. The rock falls, and he falls with it and meets his end. But, But the other rock climber stands out on the rock that was sturdy, and it holds him. 
Now, what's the difference? Was it the strength of the faith that mattered? No, it was about what they were standing on that mattered. You see, it's not the strength of your faith that matters, but the object of your faith that matters. It's not the intensity of your faith, but the direction of your faith that matters. Don't we see that in the centurion? Let me tell you another story quickly. Uh, D.A. Carson, famous theologian, tells this in, in one of his messages. He says, picture two Jews by the names of Smith and Brown. <laughs> I know, not very Jewish names, are they? But imagine these two Jews in the Exodus story, and it's the day before the very first, first Passover, and they're having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. So Smith says to Brown, wow, are you a little bit nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And, and then Brown turns to Smith and says, well, well, God told us what to do, didn't he, through our servant Moses? I mean, you don't have to be nervous. I mean, haven't you slaughtered the lamb, put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel? Aren't you packed and ready to go? I mean, are you going to eat the Passover meal with your family? Smith says, of course I am. I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary, isn't it? When you think about all of the different things that have been happening around here recently. I mean, flies, river turning to blood. It's pretty awful. And now there's the threat of the firstborn being killed. I mean, it's all right for you. You've got loads of children, but I've got one son. The angel of death is passing through. I know what God says. I've put blood where I need to put it, but, but it's just scary. I'll be relieved when this night is over. Brown responds by saying, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. Now that night, the angel of death sweeps through the land. Which one lost his son? Answer, neither. Why? Because death didn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of their faith, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. And we're seeing something about the nature of this faith in the centurion, that it's what it's grounded on, where it's directed to that's important. It's not the strength of our faith that matters, but the object of our faith. Jesus is where our faith is grounded on. He's the one who's need. we need. His life is enough. His cross is enough. And his wide open arms of grace are enough. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, it means instead of obsessing over whether or not we match up, we obsess over the beauty, the greatness, the power, the authority, the love and the kindness of Jesus himself. You know, when I'm in a spin over my own faith, I have very little assurance of God's love for me, and I go nowhere. When I focus on my levels of faithfulness, I'm always second-guessing myself. But when I'm captivated with Jesus, that's when things change. That's when I can get out of myself. And that's when I'm not plagued with the thoughts of whether I'm strong enough, because I know I'm not, but Jesus is. You see, the nature of the Christian faith is a faith that stands on the faithfulness of Jesus, not the faithlessness of me. And the centurion's faith is all about Jesus. And Jesus is celebrating this. Do you you see everyone? That's the faith I'm talking about. That's it. That's the faith. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means we go and we drink deeply afresh from the wells of God's grace. We go to the places where the the river of grace flows and the person of Jesus can be seen and known clearly. We get our noses in God's word. We get our bow on in prayer. 
We go on the phone and get connected with God's people. We fill our heart and minds with sound as a pound teaching. And then we begin to see the dry desert riverbeds of our hearts are awash with signs of lush green life. We go to the places where we can see Jesus. And then what happens is we fret less and less about the strength of our faith as we look more and more into the face and to the person of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. You see, this morning we've sat with Luke's very first readers, reading the story of this unexpected faith. It's a living faith. It's a saving faith. It's a Christ-grounded faith. And we've seen something about the very nature of faith, where it starts, humility. Faith doesn't make sense. Faith in Jesus doesn't make sense without it. What it knows, a big God is in view, power and authority. And where it stands, not on something shakeable or takeable, but on Jesus Christ himself. Now, may we be the kind of people who celebrate and experience this centurion kind of faith. As we go, may you hear these words loud and clear. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So saints, as you go out into the week, may you go in that peace.